This program is brought to you by the kind support of Moab Trail Marathon. Moab Trail Marathon offers an unforgettable voyage on a course that starts and finishes along the Colorado River in the Cane Creek Corridor. A marathon, half marathon, 5K, and Kids K meander through Moab's sandy, rocky canyons and on top of red mesas. The longer courses also include a mix of single track and Jeep roads before sending runners through technical challenges, including a fixed rope ascent, a ladder climb, a narrow slot canyon, and more. The Moab Trail Marathon takes place November 5th and 6th. Details and registration can be found at moabtrailmarathon.com. Well, anyway, I said to myself, you had the most beautiful teeth I ever saw. Well, I remember all the things, all the things I did as a child. I remember all the things. You're listening to Great Tape, an audio magazine from KZMU News. I'm Justin Higginbottom. And I'm Molly Marcello. So Justin, when you first started at KZMU News last year, we kind of bonded over our shared love of weird audio, like odd recordings, stuff that doesn't really fit into the NPR mold. Yeah, I love those personal stories of Americans and snapshots of what it's like living and working here. This country is filled with characters, and their stories can get pretty weird in a good way. And it wasn't too long ago that you said, wouldn't it be cool if we did like an alt-weekly for radio? As alt-weeklies across the country have shut down, I thought that would be a great business model to emulate. (laughs) But alt-weeklies are important. They run stories that can explain an area's culture in creative ways, maybe without that traditional news hook or format. Exactly. And even though I didn't really know what an alt-weekly for radio could sound like, I thought, well, let's try it. So our plan is to sprinkle in these special shows throughout the year that have that creative alt-weekly spirit. Some of this stuff has appeared on KZMU News before, but then there's some new stuff in here. We have some creative works, local music. Every show will have a different theme, which we'll explore in a bunch of ways, from profiles to fiction. The first theme is off to the races. We use the concept of a race pretty broadly here. In this episode, we have stories on political races, races against time, people racing against others and themselves, even a race against an invasive plant. And we'll also follow a daily race, is that right? Yep, there are races that go on every day in Moab, and we're going to be checking in on those throughout the show. But perhaps the award for earliest start time in those daily races goes to John Schwager. He runs the donut shop. And to make sure locals and tourists get the donut of the highest quality, he begins baking at around midnight. I met him at his shop while the streets of Moab were empty, many residents fast asleep, dreaming of that first morning donut. Right now I'm making glaze. Powdered sugar, water, a few other ingredients. Mix it all together, 40 pounds of powdered sugar, so it makes about... 60 pounds of glaze, enough for about five, six days. Well, it's 10 minutes to one. So I usually start at 12.30. It takes me about six hours to make everything every morning. 
and then uh, make deliveries to all the convenience stores in town, and then I uh, come back to the store and sell donuts all day. Schwager works this schedule six days a week. On those days, he's asleep by five in the afternoon. He wouldn't describe it as the sweet life. I have a horrible life. Every activity, every restaurant, everything happens after five o'clock, after I go to bed. So, I mean, yeah, I, I don't, that's my one day a week is the only day I get a chance to do anything. But for him, it's necessary. He says most donut shops use a premix, add some flour, water, and they're done. But he does everything from scratch. He mixes six different kinds of flour. So where most people stop is basically where I start. And by the time I get done, my donuts don't taste anything at all like what you get at a store. Basically your generic store-bought, pre-mixed donuts just, even though they're fresh, they just don't have the flavor that I have. He could cut a couple hours off his day, lower the quality of his donuts, but get to have more of a life. He just won't do it. You have to have pride in your product, otherwise why are you in business, you know? He's just selling junk, then why bother? So I take a lot of pride. I won't sell anything that's undercooked. I won't sell anything that's just not perfect. And there's been many days where I've thrown away a whole bunch of stuff just because it wasn't, just didn't meet my quality standards. So, you know, it's important. Schwager's been making donuts here for nearly three years. He used to work in the printing business in California, making hard copies of blueprints for architects. The uh, recession in 2008 killed the market. In the revenue just dropped. People started emailing drawings like they never had before. So by 2018, there just wasn't enough money to stay in business. And with all the people in California just looking for a new direction, it decided that, ah, heck, the internet's never gonna put donuts out of business like they did my uh, printing business. So I'm just gonna do something that the internet's never gonna affect. So I decided to make donuts. In some ways, Schwager is isolated from the community he now calls home. Outside selling donuts, there's not a lot for him to join in on. Concerts, the free concerts in the parks and all that type of stuff, the community events, even things like high school football games. You know, you can't really participate in a lot. But in another way, he's more a part of this community than most. He sees the same loyal customers come and go. He gets to meet new ones. His donuts are a linchpin in Moab's mornings. On the upside is that people love donuts and people go crazy over donuts. This is not just a, a, a regular business like my printing shop. This is something that really has impact to people. It means something. It's a lot more than just my business. It's a community business. It's a community place. So I, I try real hard just to make sure that everybody's included and everybody's, you know, this is their donut shop, not just my business. So it's, it's a lot different than anything. A lot of people are emotionally attached to donuts. There's a few people in this town that go crazy over donuts, you know, and people you wouldn't expect to go crazy over donuts. So it's a whole different type of business and you have to treat it with respect. John Schwager during his daily race to give the people donuts. You're listening to Great Tape, an audio magazine from KZMU News. Our first ever theme is Off to the Races. So let's go to a classic one. 
politics. This election season, voters will choose a sheriff of Grand County. It's the first time in over a decade that Grand will have a new person in this position. Two candidates are throwing their respective wide-brimmed cream-colored hats into the ring for the top job of the county's biggest department. It's an elected position. The sheriff answers to the people, our problems, our expectations. As current public servants, Kurt Brewer and Jameson Wiggins know a lot about the collective us. So we should get to know them. So my first name is Jameson and my last name is Wiggins. My name is Kurt Brewer. I was born and raised in Moab. I've lived here my whole life. Uh, I graduated from Grand County High School. I'm born and raised in Grand County, and I'm a sixth generation of Grand County, so my roots go far back. I'm not a really political person, and even in high school, I had no desire to be the class president. You know what, I take that back. I was president of our Interact Club in high school, and and I kind of started getting involved with emergency services while I was in high school. My senior year, I got on the uh, Moab Fire Department. Um, I really enjoyed that. I was volunteer. I've never ran for office for anything before. Um, I was very competitive growing up. I played a lot of sports, soccer, baseball, football. I used to like to play basketball, but I wasn't very good at it. I used to love, or I still do, I like to mountain bike, but that wasn't really considered a sport back when I was in high school, but, but now it is. My wife was grown, she grew up here. She was born and raised here. I've raised three, three boys, and they're all adults now, and I have three grandkids. And it was, it was fun growing up in Moab. This is, my, this is my backyard. I love Moab, I love Grand County, I love the people here. The Tibbetts side of the family, originally homesteaded in Old LaSalle, and my great-grandpa, Bill Tibbetts, was a famous outlaw of Moab, and he was actually in jail in the jailhouse cafe, and he was wanted for uh, cattle rustling, and he broke out and then went on the run for a couple of years, and he came back to actually be Moab town marshal after the statute of limitations ran out. And then my grandpa, Tibbetts, um, he was also a deputy sheriff here at Grand County as well. I can remember riding my bike from Bartlett up to Main Street, you know, and not seeing anybody. Moab was almost like a ghost town. I remember growing up out in um, Dead Horse Point area, Horse Thief area. That was my grandpa's property back in the day. Um, And I remember growing up out in the desert. And if you've seen anybody out there, it was like, is everything okay? What are you doing out here? Compared from when I was a kid growing up to now, I mean, it's, it's completely different. I never thought Moab would be what it is today. It's changed a lot. Wow. I first started in 1982, and and Sheriff Nyland was the sheriff back then, and we had a small department. It was more of kind of a, a backcountry-type department. The type of uniforms that we wore, it was more of a Western, and, you know, we had a lot of Western-type movies, and when we started getting visitors, we started getting a lot of, of people coming here. And we would be in restaurants and, and we would have our Western type uniforms on and cowboy hats and cowboy boots. You know, we were always getting pictures taken. Um, 
you know, we would be at Crescent Junction when they had the restaurant going there and people from foreign countries and they would have their kids pose with us and, you know, we, they took pictures and it was a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, it's different now, but it's still a lot of fun. I always wanted to be a law enforcement officer and specifically to be the sheriff of Grand County one day. That was my grandpa's goal, and he actually left law enforcement to stake uranium claims because he made more money, and he wished that he would have stayed in being a deputy because um, the uranium boom was up and down. But I always wanted to do the law enforcement gig. However, growing up, when I graduated high school, I went off to college, and when I came back, I worked in the mines because that's where the money was at, and the money was never really in law enforcement. Right out of high school, I, I worked in the uranium mines. So I thought, right now I need to, to have a good job and went to work in the mines and worked underground. And I thought, no, this isn't for me. And, and so I wanted to try to find a job that I could stay in Moab and, and buy a house and raise a family. But yeah, when I left the mines, I did take a, a, a significant cut in pay. But, you know, working underground, working shift work, um, you know, I just didn't like that. The thought of being laid off was the biggest thing. We had just built a house in Moab. We were worried about copper prices going up and down and up and down. And I am raising two little girls here, and I wanted to have a steady income. And so I took, I think it was like a $10 an hour pay cut to go be a deputy at the sheriff's office here. Uh, I started as a jailer, a corrections officer, and that gave me a lot of experience dealing with people. And back then, um, the jailer was, we had to book people, we were actually, we were the cooks, and we were the clean, and we were the bailiffs, and we paper servers. Today, I still have that opinion that uh, an officer, if he's with the sheriff's department, sheriff's office, that it's good for them to start in the jail because they, they kind of start learning the behaviors of people. They learn how to deal with people when they're in jail, when they're in custody. You know, people trust us when they're one of their loved ones or put in jail or themselves. We have to take care of those people. You know, when you arrest somebody, and sometimes it could be a family member. And, and that's where it's hard in a, smaller, in a smaller city because you know everybody here. You may have been at a birthday party yesterday and now tomorrow you're dealing with that person for one reason or another and it can be uncomfortable. But, you know, it, it, you just have to deal with it. And that's happened, you know. I've, my very first DUI was a high school classmate of mine. So that's, that's hard um, or you know, my neighbors have issues and I've got to respond because I'm just right there. So it's it's definitely a challenge, but it's a rewarding challenge also at the same time. You know, I found when you treat people with, with honor, dignity, and respect, you know, you get the respect back from people. And it doesn't matter who they are or, you know, why you're dealing with them or if you're arresting them. You know, you always try to treat those people with dignity and respect because they're going through a hard time. Um, one evening, my wife and I, I was off duty. We were eating at the Moab Brewery, and an individual is approaching our table. He comes up, 
he sticks his hand out and he shakes my hand and he says, thanks for treating me like a human. And so I think that personal connection of, hey, we're all going to have to go to the same grocery store. We're all going to have to, you know, our kids are going to be on the same baseball team if we can treat everybody like humans. Whereas a big agency, it's like you're never going to see this person ever again. I think that, you know, because we are in a small town and we are going to see these people again, you have to treat them like you wanted to be treated. So I started in the jail, and then um, you you promote basically, and you can apply for the road. I applied for the road, and I've been on the road ever since. One of my favorite things is to specialize in drug interdiction. Um, that's one of the main reasons why I became a cop was because of the drug problem that personally affected my family. I work I-70 a lot. I work 191 a lot. Um, and in my career, I've been able to seize over 1,000 pounds of illegal substances. So it's uh, millions and millions of dollars worth of um, illegal substances off the road that's been trafficked through our community onwards to other communities as well. And so I feel um, pretty special to, to have a big part in stopping some of that. Everything from heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, fentanyl, the dangerous fentanyl, that's, it's huge right now. And that's the one that's actually here in our community. It's in our schools. Right now, we don't even have a drug task force. In Grand County, we used to have one where we would work with San Juan County, Emory County, the Highway Patrol. And right now, we don't have um, a good drug task force. I, that would be one of the main things I would try to implement, again, as a drug task force to, to share information back and forth. I worked as a drug interdiction deputy and I was assigned to work I-70, 191, work traffic and I worked drug interdiction for a couple years. I worked also as a narcotics investigator for the Grand San Juan County Drug Task Force and I worked in that position for, for six years. That's something that is passionate to me and I feel like that's something that we need to bring back. You know we, we have we have a problem with methamphetamine with high-level amounts of marijuana, with um, heroin. And right now, our biggest is the fentanyl. We're having a lot of problems with fentanyl overdoses. That's something that we need to get a, a handle on. And that's a priority for me, is, is to try to bring back our drug task force and try to work investigations on the illegal narcotics in our community. You know, it sounds like if, if it was easy to bring that back, it would have happened already. <laughs> right. Well, and, and one of the reasons why we don't have the drug task force right now is manpower. We have a lot of positions open, and, and we can't seem to keep those positions. And one of the biggest reasons is the high cost of living in Moab and Grand County. And we hire somebody, and, you know, we spend a lot of money hiring them, training them, uh, bringing them here and everything and within a year they're gone they're like i would love to to stay here and work for the grand county sheriff's office but i can't afford it in order to keep people here to fill these positions we've got to still continue to increase pay for our deputies because other agencies are increasing their pay a lot of agencies are paying a bonus for a sign-on bonus agencies are paying a housing allowance 
And those are things that we have to look at to attract and recruit people to come to Moab. And when we get those people and we get them employed and we get them trained up, then we can move other people around in other positions. Since I've been at the sheriff's office, we've been shorthanded. I don't even know if we've been fully staffed since I've been here. So it's been hard to be proactive while you're waiting for calls and you got calls holding. So it's 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 hard in that aspect. And we have right now like we have a hard time getting new applicants at the sheriff's office and one of those is because it's hard to afford a house in Grand County. Um, so one of the things we could do is we can expand our living radius. We could have officers respond from Monticello. We could have them respond from Old LaSalle where it's somewhat affordable there. Um, right now we let people live in Green River, um, Castle Valley, and obviously here in the Valley. Um, I would even be a, a fan of letting somebody live in Loma, Colorado because it's really 10 minutes and you're inside Grand County. And we do have a lot of issues that arise out there on the interstate. So if we had somebody that lived in Loma that could respond in the Grand County, that would be a huge benefit. Another reason of why somebody wants to hire on is because of morale. And if you have good morale, you can get applicants to apply even for maybe a couple dollars less an hour than another agency that has really bad morale. Problem, too, when you're shorthanded, you, you do have to, in a sense, be reactive. But the main goal is to be proactive, to be fully staffed, you know, to implement community-based policing um, and to be transparent. I mean, we've been reactive and the city police have been reactive for, you know, it seems like a couple of years now. And, and we want to be proactive and be able to sit at different locations that we get complaints on for, for noise or speeders or you know, just amount of traffic or loud music that we get, we want to be able to sit in those areas. And so, yeah, we're, we're trying to be out there and we're trying to be seen by people and working narcotics. And, and when people know that we're out there working hard and strong, the word gets around that we've got officers out there that are working narcotics. These people that are trying to run under the radar that, you know, you better watch your back because we're going to get you. And if we don't get you today, we're going to get you tomorrow because we're not going to stop. Right now, I feel like, it's my own personal preference, I feel like we don't have any community outreach programs. We don't have any community-based policing going on. That's definitely something that I want to implement. Community-based policing is where do you want to see the sheriff's office and have the citizens feel like they're being heard? Hey, we need you on Spanish Valley. We need you to run radar in Spanish Valley. Hey, we need you on Murphy Lane. We have a lot of, say, UTVs speeding by. Um, and then listening to those and implementing that and going out and showing the results. Hey, we were out here. We listened to the citizens. We were out here on Murphy Lane. We issued this many citations, uh, this many warnings. I've personally have taken over 100 pounds of illegal substances off the road just this year. And don't you think the community would want to know about that? I think so. And I and that's something that we, we're going to have to change. We're going to have to let people know what we're doing. It's just time for change. We can't be stuck in our old ways, and we have to be willing to listen. And I don't want to see the, you know, the retired on duty. You know, I try to put myself in citizens' shoes, and what would they like to see? Do they want to see a cop sitting on the side of the road not do anything or do they want to see results the, the office of the sheriff isn't an eight to five job monday through friday it's monday through sunday 
it's every day it's 24 hours a day 365 days a year and going into this position you have to know that and you have to be available for that and you have to be available for the people been here for 40 years i've gained a lot of experience you know leadership experience dedication i feel like i have that and the knowledge that i've gained and the different positions that i've had has really kind of built me up for this position and i want this position and we have a great number of good men and women that work for the sheriff's office and and i want to be able to go in and and guide them Once you get to know me and once you get to listen to my ideas, I think that you'll enjoy what I have to say. I'm not stuck in my old ways. I'm willing to listen. The old way of looking at things with law enforcement has changed. Even even 10 years ago, law enforcement has completely changed. People want accountability. They, they want transparency. And so in order to have those things, you have to keep up with the times. That's one of my biggest reasons of running is change. I feel like we need to have change not only at Grand County Sheriff's Office, but law enforcement as a whole throughout the nation needs to change as well. I want to be a leader for those people with the experience that I have. I still have that passion. You know, a lot of officers, they can't wait to hit their 20 years. And, and then there's, they're, they're gone. And then they're going to look for something else. And I'm looking at that like I'm not ready to retire. I'm young. I'm 61 years old. But I have 40 years in experience. And, but I still have that passion. I still have that drive. I'm not ready for that rocking chair yet. <laughs> my name is Kurt Brewer. My first name is Jameson. And my last name is Wiggins. I was born and raised in Moab. Born and raised in Grand County. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you so much. That was Kurt Brewer and Jameson Wiggins, candidates for Grand County Sheriff. That election is this November. On the next leg, we have some fiction from Moab writer Mike Mooborn. Friends here know him as Marlowe. If you live here, you've likely seen him riding his recumbent bicycle with his dog trotting by his side. Marlowe chooses to not live housebound. He camps by the Colorado River at night and makes trips into town to write in his office. In this piece, he explores the race to know the West, its trails and mountains, and the people who join you for stretches along the way. Our gaze is locked as soon as I rounded the corner. It was as if she'd been waiting for me. She was sitting on the edge of the tabletop, her long legs crossed, toe of one boot touching the floor for balance, the clear plastic cup of red wine cradled in both hands. The pub had emptied out somewhat while us boys were on our geyser run, the table now occupied solely at one end by the waitress and at the other by two or three persons engrossed in their own doings. Oblivious to everything else in the room, I was pulled toward the dark brown eyes as if by tractor beam. I was roughly three pints into it by then and losing equilibrium, which didn't stop me from taking up a fresh cup and filling it with more beer from the pitcher. Okay, bucko, she said when I pulled up close. Looks like you're it. Let's go. Go where? You're walking me back to my cabin. Okay. I saw no reason not to comply. It struck me as a way to achieve two desirable outcomes, to finally quit the employee pub and at the same time interact further with the charismatic female. And her invite, too. 
She put on her jacket and we headed out. There was a minute's worth of awkward silence, the only sound our boots scuffling along the dark-colored gravel. Don't be asking me if I go to the pub often, she said, because the truth is I don't. I wasn't going to ask. I have the next two days off, but there's nowhere to hike, not until the snow pulls back. One more week and I'll be headed to Black Canyon. I'm sorry, I said. I know Paul introduced us, but I don't recall your name. Well, I remember yours. It's Marlowe. I'm amazed you could hear anything in that place. I'm Riley. Paul says you're a waitress. Yep, I wait tables right over there. She jerked a thumb toward the towering shape of the hotel and the world's most glorified log cabin. We were by then crossing the paved expanse of the great parking lot. Out away from the buildings, it was unbelievably dark, aside from the phosphorescence of the stars and invisible light which caused the stripes of the parking lot to glow. Is Riley your first name? It was the most boring question I could have asked because when you have a different sounding name, you're tired of always having to explain. It's my last, she said. You don't want to know my first or my middle. So, do you backpack, she asked. She employed the same tone people use when they ask if you smoke grass or if you swing, the question a way of cutting to the chase. I have a backpack, I told her. I've never used it. I'm more into bike touring. I like to ride my bike, my 10-speed. Do you have a 10-speed? Nope, I backpack. Somehow I could tell that by failing to be a backpacker, I'd slipped a notch before I'd even gotten started. It's remarkable to consider how abysmal was my understanding of backpacking when I first arrived to the park. I couldn't have told you what it entailed. I mean, I was the owner of a quality frame pack. I understood the concept, but I didn't know how you went about it or where exactly it took place. Want to come in, she asked. I have beer. We'd arrived to the stoop of her single occupancy, the destination towards which she'd been steering us across the dark waters of the parking lot. Sure, I'll come in for a sec. Honestly, if the girl and I had been able to talk another five minutes, if the walk to her cabin had been but another 200 yards further, I might have decided we'd had sufficient conversation and bid her good night and headed on to 2.15. Likewise, another couple of minutes of chit-chat, she might have figured out that I fell squarely in the classification of males she rejected categorically, and I wouldn't have been invited into her shack and up to the loft. Immediately inside, I tripped over some object. Riley was off in a corner of the cabin, rummaging about on the floor. What do you say about turning on the light, I asked, groping for the switch. It doesn't work, she said. I took the bulb out. Give me a sec, I'll light a candle. She went out to the stoop with what appeared to be a sleeping bag. Coming back in, she shut the door. By then, I'd extracted my flashlight from the rear pocket of the day pack and was painting the beam around. Riley navigated to a tall table where, with a butane lighter, she fired up a candle stuck into the mouth of a wicker-wrapped wine jug. You can turn that off now, she said. I made a motion with my hand and said she sure had a lot of nice gear. It's all up for grabs, she said. See anything you need, help yourself. I wandered over to the windowsill where, in addition to a couple of twig-wrapped wine bottles completely encrusted with wax, there were lined up a number of small items, rocks and pieces of petrified wood and whatnot. Then I saw the odd thing, barely discernible in the shadow, the stuffed horn rabbit skewered on the spear. I went closer to have a look-see. The glow of the candlelight, along with my drunkenness, served to heighten the strangeness of the artifact. As further indicator of how ignorant I was about the West, for half a minute I was lost in wonder that there could be such a creature as a jackrabbit with horns. I was momentarily saddened to think this fabulous beast had somehow ended up being killed 
and stuffed. Riley, noting my fascination, called out, It's fake. Immediately I could see there was something odd about how the horns had been joined to the skull. You could make out the glue or the epoxy. I knew at the moment the girl came up to stand close behind me. I could feel her heat, and when I turned, her face seemed to blot out everything else in the room. When I didn't immediately step back, she must have decided I was a taker and laid a kiss on me. I was startled. I was weak and confused from the beer, weary from having been up since six that morning for orientation. Still, she was right. I was a taker. And so, off to the races. That was an excerpt from Book 3 in the Geyser Rush series by Mike Mooborn. You can find his writing at Back of Beyond Books in Moab or online. Now to check in on those daily races around town. John Schwager has finished baking donuts for the day and is now behind the counter. A steady stream of customers come and go. I recommend the maple bacon or key lime if there are any still left. Doug McMurdo is one of those customers. He's the editor of the Times Independent. And today, he's on deadline. Wednesday is the day all stories must be filed, edits done, and pages laid out. Of course, there's weeks where things don't go as smoothly as he'd like. This is one of those weeks. Give me three of your raised uh, chocolate and four of your raised uh, glaze, okay? You know I'm going to need a cup of coffee. Oh, okay, of course. In a time when local news is drying up around the country, Moab is lucky. This community of some 5,000 residents has two weekly papers. One of those is The Times. It's family-run and has been publishing for over 100 years. In the back of their modest office downtown, they even have their very own printing press. So this is what you call a um, Goss community press. We have the capability of color on the front and back pages and we print two sections so we have four pages for our best photo color you know if we're doing our job right we're putting our best news photos on those uh, color pages and we're also putting our um, ads and more and more people want color and i don't blame them it's 2022. some weeks go smoother than others at the times and for mcmurdo at least this week could be going better because on monday morning we were suspended from our Google mail and could not get back in. Nobody could get, our, get their mail. That means reporters couldn't access government press releases for the week. Anyway, um, we lost all of those emails that came in while we were suspended. And I really rely on government agencies like the uh, Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, Natural Resources, BLM, Forest Service, yeah, um, that's how we fill the B session. That's how we get a, you know, really important news. Without those press releases, McMurdo needs to fill more pages. That's what's on his mind this afternoon. We've got no stories, and we've got two more pages, two extra pages to fill this week. And in the news business, um, filling the paper isn't a problem at a bigger paper because they almost always subscribe to Associated Press and they can fill every hole they have with Associated Press. But we've got um, a full-time reporter and we have a part-time reporter and we have me. 
This is a newsy, newsy town. It's, it's hard to cast a net wide enough to catch what you need to catch. So Sophia's working overtime. I'm working a, a really long story and I'm letting, I'm letting my writers know, don't write long because we have to fill space. You write that story and you give it every word it needs and not one more because we're not going to do that. It's, it's just lazy and uh, pretty boring. Nobody's going to read that story after 10 paragraphs. So it's a good learning teaching moment and, and learning moment for staff. For me, it's just one more stressful day being the editor of the Times Independent. This is our plate setter. This is um, pretty intense. It's where we turn our Word docs into PDFs, and then this turns it into negatives. And then we have these plates, these silver plates here. They come, they come out on here, and then they get put on the press. A couple years ago, there was an issue with that plate setter. They didn't realize it until late on printing day. So the publisher, Zane Taylor, had to rush to find someone to print the edition. Zane had connections in Tuella at the newspaper there and loaded up all of our flats, the, the silver um, tins that I was showing you that the, for the negatives, and drove to Tuella. They printed the paper and he drove back and we all interleaved the paper and got it out on time. It made it, it made it I think it might have been a day late, but it was still published on a Thursday. And we've never missed a, uh, a press run in 125 years, 126 years. We've never not published on a Thursday. The streak will stand this week. That's with help from reporter Sophia Fisher. Filing stories isn't a problem for her, especially in this town. I have to have everything in by noon or Doug starts getting mad. I mean, it's like very important to get things in by deadline. Um, and also Wednesdays are frequently the day after county commission days, which means I have like sometimes a few stories crammed into just a couple of hours. Um, but today I'm just working on a story about the unified transit master plan that was approved by the county yesterday and an associated grant application that they're launching. Um, I am finishing up some reporting about the flooding that happened last week, like a little sidebar update about um, some projects that are happening as a result of the flooding. And then I also heard yesterday during the county commission meeting about a crash on I-70 a few days ago that resulted in the death of a minor, um, which I'd had no idea about. So I'm in touch with the Utah Highway Patrol to get like a little brief out about that. McMurdo is looking over some of this week's pages. There's just something about holding a newspaper in your hand instead of scrolling through a website. And as a journalist, nothing beats having a physical representation of all that heady work you just finished. Can I take one of these? Yeah. It came out really well, if you look at it. It's in two sections, as you can see. But look at that front page. So you got color, and color, and color, and color. It goes to show just how much work goes into this sometimes. But every, you know, they, they say when you're done, um, you put the paper to bed. It's every week, it's such a sense of accomplishment because I know how hard we work, I know how hard they work at the sun, I know how hard you work. It's, it's hard to produce news and, um, and do it well, and I think we all do. Doug McMurdo during his daily race to get the Times Independent to press. You're listening to Great Tape, an audio magazine from KZMU News where our first ever theme is Off to the Races. There's an enemy in Moab. Locals know it well. It's lived here a long time, even longer in other parts of the world. Like a lot of shapeshifters, it's known by many names. 
bindi, bullhead, devil's eyelashes, buragokuru, tribulus terrestris. The names sound intense, as though they carry a hint of disdain in every language. So this is the bike area where, you know, the kids come back and forth across here, people go across the bridge. Randall Lewis. We're on a pedestrian bridge in central Moab, looking over the bike path that snakes along the edge of Mill Creek. On this day, it's still early in the season. It's been months since the enemy's last appearance in this area. But Lewis knows it's still out there, waiting. He remembers last year's battles like it was yesterday. Yeah, so this is the area that took about 10 plus hours in order to, in order to clear it. Last year, if you would have walked through here, you were guaranteed to get stabbed. It is said that into every generation, a slayer is born. Lewis may look like a typical dad, ball cap, long shorts, but looks can be deceiving. So right now, I'm actually excited to go pull them because I haven't had to pull any for, what, eight, nine, eight months? And so I'm sort of recharged. But definitely towards the end of the season, I was, I was pretty... Uh, go headed out so you're like a river guide returning to the season exactly it's the same thing but uh-huh. pulling goat heads i guess <laughs> which is crazy with a trained eye he spots a small woody seed a little dried out from last season but still capable of a fight long sharp spines decorate the edges of this geometric star creating nature's perfect thumbtack you can't really pick it up without getting pricked each of its spines could easily penetrate bare skin. And you can see it looks like a goat head. See right there? Moab's enemy, the noxious weed, known locally as the goat head. (laughs) Maybe nothing can unite a community quite like a common rage against this hardy and often infuriating invasive plant. It grows in areas where few others can survive. And it's prolific. One plant can produce thousands of these goat-like burrs per season. These seeds survive for years, just waiting for an unsuspecting shoe or tire to carry them and spread them around, likely ruining that person's day in the process. This is nature at war with anything that is able to carry these little puncture sticker weeds. Because even though there's one of them stabbed in your shoe, there's three little prongs that are sticking out. And so when you try to then pull it off of your shoe, you're going to get stabbed with your finger. Lewis, the goat head slayer, or warrior as he prefers, in his home office, not far from the goat head battleground along the bike path. The man is a data scientist by trade. For a living, he builds virtual systems to guide decision-making. So it's not altogether surprising that Moab's goat heads are a solvable problem to him. They might have seeds. Their seeds last a long time. They last uh, perhaps up to seven to ten years, maybe even longer. So they're some of the most durable seeds that exist in the plant kingdom. But? Because they're annuals, if you get them and they don't produce seeds, they're gone. So it is something that you can make progress on. Pull the plant before it seeds, get rid of it. Sounds simple enough, but the goat head is a formidable opponent. First-hand experience in his own yard taught Lewis just how prolific these weeds could be and just how difficult at times to pull. And last year, there was this one spot keeping him up at night, a giant gravel patch covered in goat heads near the local schools. And so I looked at that patch. That patch is, I think, technically city property. It is kind of in this space where if I didn't do anything about it, it would 
nobody was going to do anything about it, but it was right past where, where many kids would bike to high school and middle school. And there was, and so I've just seen so many bikes go past there that just to let millions of goat heads breed on the edge of such a highly trafficked spot, it just, I couldn't let it, I couldn't let it go. After four hours of hand pulling, he got about a quarter of the way through the massive patch. He quickly enlisted his wife and three kids. A few more hours with them, and steadily, finally, victory was theirs. And Lewis kept going. By mid-season, he was a full-on slayer, traveling to other known goat head patches and community spaces. He even created a prototype of a machine to suck up their seeds. He realized he had a favorite garden knife to pull up their roots. And he met people doing the exact same things. My name's Liz Ballinger. I am an ecologist with the National Park Service. I manage the vegetation program there, but really my passion for managing goat heads is, I would say, at a much more personal level. <laughs> so I'm not speaking for Park Service here. If there's one thing I've learned when it comes to locals and goat heads, it gets personal. Once that first sticker pops your bike tube, cuts your hand, hurts your dog's paw, that's usually all the experience you need to take up arms against it. Ballinger says, at times, like Lewis, she's been known to, quote, go rogue. I will admit and confess to doing some ninja uh, goat head pulling activities around uh, the neighborhoods and, and maybe crossing slightly into people's private properties, especially if it seemed like the goat heads were going to be rolling down into the street. A little light trespassing in the name of collective good. And Ballinger has taken it a step further. Last year, she printed off informational flyers with full-color mugshots of Puncture Vine, alias Goathead, alias Tribulus Terrestris. The bold red lettering across the page warned, noxious, invasive plant. The Goathead shapeshifts, so she wanted people to know what they look like throughout their season and how to get rid of them. It seems like you turn your back on them and you turn around and like the next day they've grown several inches. <laughs> and that's kind of how these guys seem to operate. And they can go from seedling stage to flowering and then producing fruit within a couple weeks easily. According to experts, they need warm soils and a certain amount of moisture to really take off. Last year's heat, coupled with giant monsoons and townwide flooding, all of this created just the right conditions for what Ballinger calls Goathead-mageddon. It was because of the population explosion that happened due to this really great monsoon season that we had. And the monsoon, I mean, we, we needed that moisture. We were all like super excited and doing our rain dances and celebrating out there. But of course, so were the goat heads, right? It remains to be seen what will materialize this year in terms of the monsoon. Um, but especially because there was a lot of uh, goat heads that went to seed last year, we've got an incredible seed bank. And so they're all just kind of waiting now and they're, they're gonna come up and, and party with us again. Anticipating this party, a couple months back, Lewis created a Facebook group called Moab Goatheads Gone. It's ideal for anyone interested in tackling goatheads in community spaces. Group members can pool their knowledge and share updates about known trouble spots. Anonymous Park, the intersection of 400 North and 500 West. I think with the group, well, we'll see sort of what comes of it. I really just wanted to give, a, give people a place where, where they could post. They could say, hey, I'm going to go pull goat heads. Do you want to come pull goat heads with me? Try to, try to help it feel less lonely. Pretty soon after the group went live, 
one newcomer posted in all caps, I have found my people. You know, it annoys the bejesus out of my my mother and my partner and my friends when we're going somewhere and I'm like pulling weeds. I'm behind everyone in the group because I'm pulling weeds on corners. Kaya Marienfeld, a member of Moab Goatheads Gone. We're speaking downtown at the food truck park, one of the known goathead hotspot areas. There's a lot of foot traffic here, which means plenty of opportunity for the burrs to hitch a ride on an unsuspecting athletic shoe, successfully spreading themselves across the county and who knows where else. Goatheads hug the ground as they grow. And last year, Marion Feld and a friend tackled a patch of them here that looked like a mat, or as she describes, carpet. It was a literal carpet of goat heads. And so we figured out that the, the easiest way to do it was to sort of just pull up the ends and just start rolling it up as if it was a carpet. And then eventually you get to where the root is in the ground. And you take, I like to use the claw end of a hammer, like a framing hammer. It works really, really well. You just like take that, you pull it up out of the ground and then keep rolling. And they were like all attached together. It was crazy. <laughs> This task of pulling goat heads in quasi-community spaces has been done for years, informally among friends and family. It's still that way, but Moab Goat Heads Gone promises a little more coordination. Neighbors can now post pictures of where the plants are growing and discuss attack strategies. One photo from late July shows goat heads popping up along the fence between A1 Storage and the Best Western. The post says, okay people, it's time. Commenters make plans to address the spot. One person simply writes in with the hashtag, have hulaho, will travel. At this point, you might be wondering, don't we have a weed department? It is one of the weeds that I get the most calls about and also impacts my daily life. I hate getting them in my feet as well. Izzy Weimholt, Grand County's Noxious Weeds Supervisor. Her department is tasked with handling a lot of invasive plants. Their top priorities right now are giant reed and African rue. Goat heads aren't considered as threatening to native ecosystems as those other two. But Weimholt has put some extra resources toward controlling them. Goatheads or puncture vine are a class three weed, which means that our priority is containment. Um, but as a department, we have just prioritized it higher based on community need. Um, so while we don't go to the law to enforce removal, we do put in a lot of resources um, for removal and also obviously containment. Grand County's weed department is made up of just two people. Weimholt and a coworker. They have to worry about invasive species everywhere, from downtown Moab to the middle of nowhere in the book cliffs. There's just so many acres to cover. So she's grateful for the grassroots community effort springing up around this particular weed. And last year, this type of enthusiasm even gave her an idea. I kept getting calls about, what can I do? I have so many bags full of goat heads. And I was like, oh, well, maybe you can just bring them up here. Up here, meaning her office near the local recycling center, she started weighing the trash bags full of goat heads, keeping a tally of how much each person brought in. It quickly became a community-wide competition. We distributed prizes based on who brought in the most. Many local businesses actually chipped in. Um, we had gift cards from Wild and Scapes and 
bike tune-ups for Moab Cyclery, some gift cards to Moonflower. It was kind of a community effort yeah, that everybody could rally around. It's notable when people come together for a chance to vanquish a common enemy. You know, like the, the tendencies of humanity almost rest on it a little bit. It's either like it's a really good sign that we're all, you know, protecting our area together and doing little bitty things that make a lot of difference for the collective good, or it's like tragedy of the commons. I think it's one of those two things. Marion Feld again. There are certain problems in the world that can feel overwhelming. The crushing weight of climate change, systemic inequality, even state and local policies that don't sit right. She says trashing goat heads can just make you feel better. I try not to get really upset about things I can't do anything about. And I think this is a very good example of something that, you know, I and we can. I certainly feel a degree of love and joy and inspiration about the areas where I know we've made a difference. Back at data scientist slash goat head slayer Lewis's office, he's worked out an equation. Goat heads, he reminds me, are an annual, and their seeds are viable for roughly three to seven years. So this year, if we get 90% of them, maybe next year, maybe there'll only be 10% as many, and then we can get you know, another 90% of those. And if there's only dozens of them instead of hundreds or thousands of them, then it just becomes a much more manageable effort. And then we get to enjoy the bike trails and we get to enjoy the community and our dogs and cats don't get stabbed as much. And it'll just be a, I don't know, it'll be Moab bliss. But to experience such bliss, the battle must continue. And now seems like the time for action to get the plants before they go to seed. Ballinger says just one goat head pulled early can prevent hundreds of them from spreading later. I do feel the sense of urgency trying to make sure that you get to all your hot spots. We call them our hot spot areas before they start dropping the seeds because then once they drop the seed, then what are you going to do? Uh, walk around within your crocs to pick up all the seeds? I, I don't know, you know, it, it gets bad. So you have to just try to stay on top of it and there is this window of time where if we can like pull together. Not to have that pun, but yeah, if we can all pull together, um, we can make a really big difference. There's a story Ballinger likes, a kind of legend several people have repeated to me while discussing goat heads in the Moab Valley. The former publisher of the Times Independent, before he passed away, wrote a column. In one of them, he laments that goat heads are one of the reasons he never went barefoot growing up here as a kid. As he tells it, this tiny enemy first came to Moab on the rubber tires of carnival trucks, the ones that would set up their entertainment on a vacant corner off Center Street. And then, you know, a few weeks later, people started seeing the pretty little flowers blooming, the little yellow flowers. And by the time they realized what they were, it was too late. As an ecologist, Ballinger knows that completely eradicating goat heads for the Moab Valley is likely not possible. But she thinks control is a very achievable goal. And control is something that can only happen if people take collective action, adopting common areas and checking on them throughout the goat head season, regularly looking at your shoes and tires to make sure you're not accidentally giving them a ride and helping them spread around. 
and perhaps even going a little rogue. She tells me about some friends of hers who tackled a bad goat head infestation off Murphy Lane. And they took old uh, foam sleeping pads that they had and made these like special shoes. They strapped them to their shoes and then walked around to pick up all the goat head seeds. Special shoes, prototypes of seed rollers, locals chatting up their favorite method of goat head pulling. No one really offered me anything positive to say about this weed, but they had positive solutions. Perhaps that's what goat heads are good for inspiring people to get creative and band together. Dare I say, they build community. They're miserable for everybody, right? Regardless of our political stripes or opinions on various local issues, it's like, I think we all agree that we need to help get rid of goat heads. (laughs) This story first aired on KZMU News back in August. Since then, the members of Moab Goatheads Gone have been in full swing. This year's historic flooding has not seemed to deter them either. If anything, they're doubling down. They've held goathead pulling contests and parties at local trailheads. More people are now sharing tips and tricks and photos from their conquests. You can find those online. And you can find the goathead slayers in real life anywhere the disturbed soils and the sidewalk meet. Local poet and songwriter Brian Laidlaw is one of the front people of a band called The Family Trade. He thinks about time kind of a lot in his work. The rhythms of the natural world, the seasons, shifts even from moment to moment. And lately, he's been thinking about deep time. Which is like geologic time, time that unfolds in intervals far longer than any person can experience. We all know the rhythm of like day and night or the rhythm of like winter, spring, summer, fall, because those happen in human time. Like we're able to see a whole cycle pretty easily. Whereas deep time, it blew my mind to learn that every 100,000 years or so, there's like a global period of glaciation. And so that's another rhythm that is a real natural rhythm, but we're alive for such a small slice of time that we don't get to hear that music. We don't get to experience that pulse. But things that are around for longer than us, like huge granite mountains or whatever, actually do experience the ebb and flow of glaciation over 100,000-year periods. And we're just the tiniest little blip within that cycle, but it's still a cycle that we're inhabiting. And so I think, of course, it's so much easier for us to relate to the cycles, the rhythms that take place in human time. But it's a really, I think, inspiring and like important meditative practice to try to connect with those longer cycles that are taking place in deep time. And that's something that um, a lot of the songs that I've been writing and a lot of the poems I've been writing, books I've been working my way through, um, are addressing, including the song that 
I was going to share here. You know, you explained about glacial time, <laughs> and that was very much on your mind when you recorded the song or when you wrote the song and put it together? Yeah, so this one actually is even more local than that. Um, I had an awesome hang um, by the river just a, you know, a couple weeks ago with a friend of mine who's a geologist, um, and she introduced me to the concept of parent rock, which I had never heard of before, but that is like when you have sand, the parent rock refers to the body of rock that that sand got eroded out of. So like all of the sand that is in that riverbed out there came from somewhere and it came from rock. Um, And then the crazy part about that is that then all of this sand is being like washed down the river and out to sea and it will reconsolidate over millions of years back into rock and then presumably long into the future be ground back down into sand again And so even these things that we think of as being, you know, rock is like, we think of it as being the ultimate time withstanding material. Like we think that rock transcends time and that it's permanent. Um, But even that is part of this cycle of change that comes and goes. Um, And it just absolutely blew my mind um, to learn that. I had never thought of it that way before. Um, So I went home and and wrote this tune after, after that hang.
Brian Laidlaw performing his original song called Rock Again for KZMU's Great Tape. Laidlaw is a poet, songwriter, and front person of The Family Trade, a band based right here in Moab. All right, Justin, what's going on with our daily race? We started with John Schwager at the donut shop baking at midnight. Then we heard from one of his customers, Doug McMurdo, who's tackling his own deadline at the Times Independent. Well, Doug McMurdo and those at the Times made their deadline. After printing, the newspaper staff helps put the paper together, folding and adding inserts, and then it is delivered across town by people like A.J. Long. For Long, newspaper distribution is a family business. Here we step inside his car as he drives around Moab, delivering the news. Father-in-law used to manage the Salt Lake Tribune and USA Today, Deseret News, Denver Post, Grand Junction Sentinel. Whole slew of newspapers here, Moab and the surrounding area. Newspapers flow in the blood. Every Wednesday, Long loads up his car with newspapers, hot off the Times Press, and drives to newsstands in town, picking up old copies and putting down this week's news. When my wife was young, she and her brother and sister had paper routes that they do on their bicycles. Back in the days when Newspapers were still delivered door to door, <laughs> which sadly it is going out the window. But, uh, when I moved here, I started started working for him after a while, so I've been delivering papers. I got this job when I first moved here, so I've been delivering the Times Independent for 18 years now on Wednesdays. Yeah, so my my two sons usually ride along with me to do this, but then they have just a little door-to-door delivery. All three of them have a little door-to-door delivery route. When his kids aren't helping him deliver the times, they're delivering the advertiser door-to-door. For the Longs, newspaper delivery is really a family business. You know, the last place sold out, but this place barely sold any, so you never know. Long grew up in Montana. He moved to Moab for some of the usual reasons, the beauty and the access to nature. It's a beautiful area, and I don't regret it one bit. Love going on field trips with the kids, and it's funny because they, you know, the kids every once in a while will go on a field trip and they'll say, not arches again. And I'm like, you have no idea how great it is to have a national park in your backyard that you get to go on field trips to. Makes me laugh when they gripe about going to Arches again on a field trip. They don't know what they uh, would be missing out on if they didn't live somewhere like Moab, Utah. But he also moved here for a reason that's pretty unique. It was to spread a different kind of news. One of the big reasons I wanted Jehovah's Witnesses and I moved out here because 
There were barely any in the area, and they moved out here to help support them. There's only about 60 Jehovah's Witnesses here in Moab in the whole southeastern Utah area, so it's a little, there's not very many Jehovah's Witnesses here, but we try to do our best to reach out to Moab, Monticello, Blanding, Green River, this whole area, and, and offer to teach about the Bible. Busy life. <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses stopped knocking on doors during the pandemic, but this month they are finally getting back to their most recognizable outreach method, and Long's happy about it. He likes telling people about his faith. The name of our religion is Jehovah's Witnesses because we witness for Jehovah, which is the name of, of the true God of the Bible, Jehovah. And so you were asking if I take part in the door-to-door -door preaching activity, absolutely. And so does every single other Jehovah's Witness, because that's what we are. We are His Witnesses. And we all live what the Bible commands. And I think Jesus said in, in John 13.35 that by this you would know that, that His true worshipers and that quality is love. And we try to try to live by that. Try to be as loving as possible. That's what I love about it, is the love shown by Jehovah's Witnesses. Long has seen Moab change quite a lot in the 18 years he's been delivering on this route, one front page at a time. I think just the, the number of businesses that exist in Moab at this point, and watching it spread both directions out of the valley, seeing so many areas get developed just in less than 20 years. It's amazing how this area up here, where the hospital is now, I mean, that all used to be an orchard, and then across from that was a low-lying field with horses in it. Now the hospital's where the orchard used to be, and across the street where that pasture was. The streets the he's driving today are still dusty from historic flooding the week before. That flood washed mud into businesses, tore down trees, and blocked walkways. But since then, many in the community have come out to help clean up before the fall tourist season begins. It's the kind of community effort Long lives for. You know, it was pretty amazing just last weekend with all the flooding. Just driving uptown and seeing how everybody just got together to help one another out and clean up all the businesses clean up Main Street and just put themselves out there for one another and it's a community that I think loves the area, loves nature. I think that's why a lot of us live here and it shows in how willing everyone is to, to pitch in, clean up and help keep the area beautiful. I like that attitude. Now we'll change routes to our next story. It's a profile of Davina Smith. She's running for Utah State House District 69. That's a big rural district that includes Smith's home in the Navajo Nation. She's the first Native American woman to run for state public office. She's also a long distance runner. So you get the idea. Emily Arnston brings us this story on Smith's political ambitions as well as the importance of running in Navajo culture. 
the purpose of running is that it's about healing. Running is medicine. We get up in the morning and we run to the east, you know, we greet Father Sky and it's that time of solace for yourself and it really is a good time when you need to clear or declutter your mind. Great thinking comes out of that. This is Davina Smith. She's running for Utah State House of Representatives in District 69. She's also the first Diné or Navajo woman to run for the Utah legislature. But way before she started running for office, she ran literally from southeastern Utah to the Capitol building in Salt Lake City. Actually, she ran to the Capitol building twice. The most recent, which was last September, and that one was 427 miles. The first one was 330 miles. Smith has been running ever since she can remember. Who taught you how to run? No one. <laughs> it's, just, it's just something you see and you just start, you know, you do as a little kid, you run. So <laughs> I've always been running. Um, it was something, I mean, it's in our Diné philosophy. And part of that Diné philosophy is the tradition of running long distances as a form of prayer. Last fall, Smith and a group of runners traveled on foot from Bears Ears National Monument to Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, and then up to the state capitol. At that point, it was about a year and a half into the pandemic, and Smith felt... It's like, okay, so much has happened. Lives have been lost. Issues and justices are happening. Mother Earth, you know, yeah, we, we need to get a prayer run done. So the prayer run starts off with a day before. I usually go with the medicine man, and that was Jonah Yellowman. He met me out in Bears Ears, and we collected medicine plants that I carry on my back. Flowers, sage, juniper. We had a blessing, and we started our run. The run took a little over two weeks to complete. And along the way, Smith and the group were able to see firsthand the state of the environment across different regions in Utah. We were making our way to Capitol Reef. It was so heartbreaking because we were starting to see the reducing of Lake Powell, the water levels, how much it had dropped significantly. And we actually did a prayer there for the water. And then the next day, coming into Capitol Reef National Park. It was my turn to run, and all these emotions just overcame me. You know, I was thinking of all the relatives I've lost, friends I've lost. But also, I'm looking at an environment. I'm looking at the water. You know, water is life. In it, in our language, is water is sacred. And it just hit me, and I just leaned over, and I cried so hard. Everywhere I was going, I could feel these connections to our Mother Earth. One morning, Smith had a brief but special connection with a little friend. I was up stretching, and I look over to the edge of the road, and I see this little mound. And this triantula comes out of its hole, like, excuse you, you're right in front of my door, you know? I'm like, wow. <laughs> so, But... It was something so powerful to see that little triantula protecting its home. But also in my culture, spider is, is a connection to spider woman, our weavers. My late grandmother from Monument Valley, Utah, was a well-known weaver. So I think of that as spider woman. So I greeted her. And I said, we're just here temporarily. We will leave, you know, but thank you. It was so good to see you. 
But I also thought it was something like maybe a, a little sign or a message from my grandmother saying I'm here. As Smith said earlier, all her best thinking happens when she runs. So as I was running, I was passing through those communities in a form of prayer. I was hoping and wishing the best. And so with that, it it started coming together in my mind like, well, if you have this great concern, why don't you do something literally about it? I realized, okay, I'm going to run. I'm going to run for office. How have your experiences on the prayer runs helped you prepare for running for office? It's really taught me to have thick skin because you're out there literally every day in the heat and you're dealing also with drivers. Um, I've been scared a couple of times <laughs> with those near experiences. So in this race, it's kind of like, okay, remember those times when you're out on the road, but I am definitely ready for this. That was a profile of Utah State House candidate Davina Smith, put together by Emily Arnston. You're listening to Great Tape from KZMU News. Our theme is Off to the Races. There's a vital race that happens across the country, every minute of every day. Everywhere there's a paved road. It's the reason you have ripe tomatoes, or ice cream, or paper clips. Two hundred years ago, Moab was on the old Spanish trail. Traders and pioneers moved through the Red Rock Valley, traveling between Santa Fe and Los Angeles. Now Moab is on trucking routes, supplying products across the Southwest. Trucks move over 70% of the nation's freight by weight. In 2020, there were some 3 million drivers. But it comes at an often hidden cost. Behind every rumbling engine are stories of missed birthdays and anniversaries, of loneliness and health sacrifices. Victor Beltran is parked outside of a Maverick gas station. His driving partner is asleep in the truck, he'll be waking up any minute, and then it will be Beltran's turn to rest. In the container of his truck are airbags for cars. So they construct the airbags in Ogden, and uh, we pick them up, take them to Laredo, and then we pick up parts for airbags and bring them back to Ogden. And that's my job. We do about 6,000 miles a week. You know, we go to Laredo twice in one week. The only thing I like about trucking is the money. That's the only reason why I do it. There's some people that love it. I know there's, they live in these trucks and this is all they do. And like I said, they're a different breed. They're amazing people. Beltran lives in the Salt Lake Valley. He's been on the road for most of this week and it will still be a couple days before he sees his children. But um, I drive six, six days out of the week and uh, I have a wife and six kids, so I miss out a, a lot on that. I come home on Monday around 2 or 4 p.m., and then I leave Wednesday morning. I spend all day with my wife. Uh, she doesn't leave my side, and uh, I try to do as much as I can with each kid. I have no idea what the old-timers have gone through, but they're made out of different stuff because the technology that we have to communicate with them. I'm on the phone every day with my wife and kids. I call them up, hey, what are you doing today? Uh, they didn't have that opportunity. You know, they had to pull over pay phones if pay phones were available. So I don't know how they did it. The winds were from the 
Raymond Munson knows about the stress that trucking can cause a family. He's parked in a dirt lot just outside of town. He has a natural gas tank on his flatbed. So when you come home, I mean, the running, jumping your arm hugs, you know, and then when it's time to leave, the crying, you know, that's, that's the hardest part is, you know, saying goodbye. It's been really hard, you know, it ended up causing a divorce and I guess it drives me crazy not being home all the time. So before recently, I mean, I'd get home maybe once a month for a few days. But as of recently, it's been a little better. I mean, I come through maybe twice a week. Yeah, being gone all the time. The first company I went to work for, I was a, it was a training company. You had to be out two to three months before going home. I mean, that's kind of what killed it. I mean, just right away. It's, it's a lifestyle. Going from being able to be home in a nice bed every night to living on the road full time, it's definitely a lifestyle. It's not, you know, just a necessity. I mean, you have to fully embrace it to be able to do it every day. Me, myself, I, you know, on a good day, I can run 700 miles in a day. In the time I've been driving, I've only been driving since 2017. I've covered all of the lower 48. I kind of dropped out of school. I didn't finish high school. I didn't do any kind of college training. So I, I did what I was good at. And I got tired of working jobs that just, I mean, minimum wage, you know, in modern society, you can't survive on it. And so I went, you know, looking for more money with what skills I had. And I found somewhere that, you know, I felt I made a difference. And when she asked me to stop, I couldn't. I said, you know, we got to make it work. You know, I can't go back to you know working minimum wage working 60 70 hours a week for three or four hundred dollars joel sweat is from mississippi from the same street as jerry lee lewis those old timers that different breed who doesn't mind being on the road for most of the month that might just be sweat he doesn't seem to particularly miss home how, how often do you make it home I, this is my home I got a car down in El Paso. Uh, I uh, I rent a little uh, Airbnb. I've got an Airbnb house I always rent when I'm down there across the border. What I like to do is I like to work three weeks and take a week off. And that way I can, you know, I don't like to get up, you know, and when I'm off, I like to be off instead of a weekend off. It takes me sometimes to get over, you know, get, get rid of a hangover. It takes me all weekend to get rid of a hangover. You know, I need more than three days. I need at least a week. This truck is top of line. This is the Cadillac of trucks. This is a 2020 uh, Kenworth. This is good. this is nice to get, really. I mean, right now I've got it kind of jumped up, but that's a very comfortable bed. That's one of the most comfortable beds I've ever been in. And I've got a thermostat back there. I've got my own. I don't have to run the main engine. I've got a little engine back there that I can keep a thermostat controlled. I got pots and pans. I cook. I got a refrigerator. Matter of fact, I cooked some sausages earlier. Uh, Sweat was in the military, then he worked in oil fields in Texas, on offshore rigs in Africa, towboats on the Mississippi River. Now he's parked in a spot of shade in downtown Moab, a load of refrigerated candy in his truck. It's, I'm my own boss. I've, I've worked, uh, like I said, I've worked uh, 
on tow boats on Mississippi River. I did that for seven years. I work a month on, a month off. I like to make my own schedule. And I, if I want to stop in the middle of the day and pull over and take a nap, I can. I work for a really, really good family that owns a business out of El Paso. And so all my life I've traveled. I've, I've lived in Pakistan and worked in Pakistan. I've lived and worked in the Kuwait, in Iraq, uh, Africa, and Nigeria. And I've been all up and down the East Coast, the South, and the Midwest. And I've always wanted to travel out West. And I didn't. I was like, you know, what am I going to do? You know what I mean? It's funny how fate finds you. Trucking is the seventh most dangerous job in the country. Earlier this month, a person was killed when they collided with a semi-truck near town on an early Saturday morning. Last year, two trucks collided on the highway, killing both drivers. It's unsafe out there. You know, trucking is not a safe occupation. They take pride on how many safe miles you do. That's why I got that big one up there. I've done one million safe miles. Beltran has a big red one on the side of his truck for driving a million miles without an accident. He's also wearing a hat celebrating the feat. Anything can happen. For me, a great day when it, for me is uh, when it was boring. Uh, if nothing happens, I'm happy. Because something happens when you're trucking, it's usually not a good thing. Tire blows or hit a deer or you know, accident in front of you or bad weather. It's usually don't like excitement. <laughs> I was team driving, and during the uh, my sleeping shift, my co-driver wrecked the truck while I was sleeping in the bunk. It's one of the scariest experiences, you know, dead in your slumber to a truck rolling over, and then them wanting you to jump in another truck with another co-driver. I couldn't do it. I, I handed them the keys and said, yeah, I'm done. Well, there was word that they were going to try and build a Loves on the north side of town, and that got shut down. I mean, it's something that's needed here. That's, that's one problem that we face every day, having somewhere safe to park. Every day, I keep my tire thumper close when I go to bed. You know, you never know if someone's going to try and break in. And I even have gotten to the point I avoid cities like Chicago or, you know, places like that just because... I mean, I've watched people get broke into in the middle of the night. It's not only crashes and crime that make trucking risky. Sitting behind the wheel can take a toll on your health. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found drivers were twice as likely to smoke and had twice the rate of diabetes than the national average. It can also be hard to exercise regularly during a long haul. It's really easy to gain weight driving a truck especially if you keep that left door closed and you just aim for miles and miles and sleep you know if you're just driving and sleeping you can gain weight so much my first year in trucking i gained 100 pounds a good friend of mine i mean he ended up having a health issue that was caused by an injury at trucking that ended up causing cancer to spread and he died last year and i mean we were closer than friends so you make a lot of friends out here, but at the same time, you know, when you do find the good ones, you know, it's always something crazy that takes them. Man, working as a freaking cashier at Walmart, down in El Paso, when I was working in the oil fields, El Paso was like one of the world's safest cities. It was like extremely safe. 
kumbaya, everybody walks around hugging. And then some jackass freaking paints himself up and walks into the Walmart down there. Yeah, and kills 10 to 15 people. The way I look at it, brother, man, when the Lord says it's, oh, it's, it's today's the day, right now is it. That's it. The thing that surprised me is um, I didn't know how important it was. Because I just barely started about seven years ago, when it was like early 40s. Um, the importance of truck driving, of how we get our stuff. I took all that, all that, took all that stuff for granted. You know, I didn't care how it got to the store, <laughs> but it's it's really important, and um, it's really important to make sure it continues. Because um, they have a nice saying, you know, if they go on a strike within three days, you know, America would stop because you know they deliver everything especially like fuel and gas. Yeah. So that's why they say America would stop because no one would deliver their gas. If all truck drivers decided to go on strike, this country would shut down in a week. There would be no gas at the pumps in two days. No groceries within three to four in grocery stores. It is amazing. You know, we what we do every day, it makes such a difference. People at home, you know, they've got to think that we sacrifice getting to see our kids to put food on your table. Everything comes by truck. At some point or another, everything does. Either if it's not the clothes you're wearing, it might be the threads going. To, I used to uh, pick up over in the heart of North Carolina, down there in North Carolina, Georgia line. I used to take bales of cotton that was picked up in, in the, out the fields, right? Up to a thread uh, place up there where they died and they thread it and make make yarns and things. I'd never seen all the stuff, you know, all the different little things that go by truck. To me, it's not going to be long term. I can't imagine doing this for 30, 40 years. I'm hoping to give it another five, maybe nine more years and do something before I turn 60. <laughs> One day I'd like to own a fleet of my own and I'd stay home, let other people make money for me. But it's not in the cards for me right now, so. My father is, I've grown up around this. My father um, is 84 years old. He started driving trucks in 19th, the spring of 1961. He is still freaking driving. He's got one eyeball he can see out of. That one's got to go cover something in. But anyway, the truck's all he knows. That's what he does. He's, he he uh, delivers uh, new trucks for different companies now. But I mean, he still, you know, gets up and, you know, goes and gets in the truck. My brother's got his own truck. And I did not want to go on trucks. I was like, man, I want to get in a truck. I, I felt claustrophobic, you know, before I got used to it. Once I got used to being alone and just with your own thoughts and your own, because your mind can be your worst enemy. And if you, if you can conquer the loneliness and, and be, com be comfortable with being alone, you got it made, man. You can, the sky's the limit then. Because then it takes a real special person to freaking get up in your atmosphere because you're like, hey, I'm good the way I am. Well, you bring the table. <laughs>
Veronica Verdeen and Lauren Carmona imagined what this small town Uber driver's life might be like in an original radio play called Moab's Only. It first aired at Star Hall during our radio play festival this spring. need to get to Woody's at 1.36 a.m. on a Tuesday? That's the first time I've heard that one. It isn't always easy being Moab's only Uber driver, but someone's gotta do it. There's just one thing. It's absolute suicide on the dating front. Hard as I try, I just can't seem to get past the second date. Why, you ask? I mean, it, it, it might be me. But also, this town is minuscule. You haven't experienced true pain until you pick up your ex-girlfriend Charlie on a Sunday night, thinking she might want to take you back. Only to drop her off at her new River Guide du Jour's trailer in Spanish Valley. Hardly worth a 10-mile job, let me tell you. But hey, there's good money to be made. And why should I let that get in the way of me trying to find love? I know it's out there. I am a romantic, after all. Which brings me to... Sharon Mayfields. The date was going well until... Um, hey, I think you're getting a phone call. Really? Uh, I don't hear anything. Um, yeah, that's definitely you. I don't think I am. No, uh, must be the guy at the other table. So, so rude. You know, you can answer it. Oh, oh no, it's fine. It's really, like, no problem if you do. No, 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 I'm fine. It's, uh, it's all about you, baby. Um, you know, I think I'm just going to go wash my hands real quick before the food gets here. Um, okay. Good luck. Pick up available at Old City Park into minutes. (laughs) Don't worry. At this point, I really do hate myself. I'm a romantic, an optimist. This town is so small, I might as well take advantage of it. Old City Park in two minutes? I'll be back before the appetizer even arrives. At least that's what I thought. The pickup location has changed. The pickup location has changed. What? Why? Is it moving? The pickup location has changed. Excuse me, ma'am! Why are you running? Did you call for an Uber? Oh, thank God you're here. My baby boy's gone missing and I need help. Your kid? Ma'am, that sounds serious. Have you thought about calling the police? Yes, my kid, my son, my baby, my precious angel sent from above jangles. I called the animal shelter. I left several unhelpful posts with little to no information in the Lost and Found Pets of Moab Facebook group. And no luck so far. So I thought I'd have a better chance on wheels. So you called me? Yes. Yes, I did call you. You do it for Woober, don't you? It's Uber. Uh, Ma'am, and yes, yes I do. Uh, Only one in Moab, in fact. Well, it sounds like I'm in luck. What are you waiting for? Drive! We've got a dog to find! Over there! Watch out! Where? In the bushes! Something's moving! It's my baby! No, it's not! Yes! Yes, it is! Man, it's not a 
dog. It's literally a plastic bag blowing in the wind. American beauty style. Oh, well, are you sure? I'm sure. Look over there. 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 There are one, two, three, four, seven dogs. Surely one of them is Jangles. Jangles! No, that's not him. How? Uh, how, how can it not be him? You don't think I can tell my own dog from his own bark? Keep driving. Ma'am, uh, uh, ma'am, uh, ma'am, I'm not, I'm just saying it's a lot of dogs. Well, it's not my dog. Okay, it's not your dog, but I don't have time for this. These feral dogs are boy. Why are there so many? Don't you dare call my dog feral. Stop! I knew I was in trouble. The second my light shone upon little Jangles, it was already dark. I had to get back. Sharon, Sharon, please, let me explain. You know, Brett, I don't think you really need to explain. The point of a date is to kind of, like, spend it with another person. Sharon, no, I... You know what? It's fine. I don't need a man's help to have a romantic evening. I can take care of that by myself, thank you very much. Sharon, I, I can explain. I know I messed up, but we can just head back inside... Order a little tiramisu for two and pretend like nothing ever happened. Except it did happen, and the restaurant closed like 30 minutes ago, Brett. That's fine. I don't need dinner. Who needs dinner? Been meaning to go on a diet, uh, anyways. We could get some ice cream at 7-Eleven. Brett, look. That's really fine. I'm tired and I just want to go home. Well, at least let me drive you. That's okay, I already called an Uber. Your Uber driver, Brett will be arriving in less than one minute. That was Moab's Only, an original radio play by Veronica Verdeen and Lauren Carmona. Now to check in on those daily races happening around Moab. We followed John Schwager at the donut shop as he baked fresh donuts for that morning. Doug McMurdo picked up a few as he rushed to make deadline at the Times. And then newspaper delivery man A.J. Long drove copies around town. Some of those made it to Moab Nursing Home Canyonlands Care Center, where Marjorie Logan is a resident. She's on the final stretch of what you could call the race of life. It's different from any other race we've covered. Everyone must complete it. And for most, the goal is to put off finishing for as long as possible. Logan is 97 years old, born in 1924, four years after women got the right to vote, three years before television would be invented. I'm from Chicago, grew up there and lived there. My husband is from Chicago, too. We both went to the same grammar school and high school and lived on the same street. And we married in 1947, and we lived in a neighborhood called Norwood Park. People were friendly, and it just it was just people living together, and it happened to be 
German and Polish. It was just a real nice place. And there was no trouble between people at all. Went out and played all the time. In fact, my mother made me stay in after lunch because she didn't want me running the neighborhood. <laughs> no, it was safe. There was no trouble at all. My dad wouldn't lock the front door when he came in. Why? Nobody's going to come in. <laughs> I took it day by day and didn't worry about the future as far as illness or something like that. And fortunately, most of my relatives were healthy and didn't cause me to worry about them. As a younger person growing old, didn't bother me in the least. It bothers me now. I'd rather not be 97. I, I don't know what I'd like to be, but the heck with it. <laughs> the world is very different now than when Logan was growing up. But like aging itself, she says that change happens slow and steadily. There wasn't one moment when she realized she was in a different kind of world, even though that's where she now finds herself. There's nothing that has really caught my attention. I think there's been a, just a gradual change. Well, one thing with television, and that came in while I grew up, there's more news rather than just the radio blaring away. And I say blaring because my dad always had the radio on and he wanted his station. It's not any fun listening to the news. You realize how cruel people are. It's awful. And you wonder how in the world it's going to continue because the pe people that have power are so mean. And all they want is their own power. They don't really care about anyone else. That's, I think that's the biggest thing that bothers me. I can't say I'm pessimistic, but I'm not optimistic. The idea of government bothers me because so much of it's wrong and people, the wrong people are in charge. They're selfish, yes. Logan studied geology at university. She loved it, but with two children to raise, she couldn't finish her degree. I had two years. And then I was busy being a mother. Well, women didn't need a college education. That was there. You didn't hear people talk about it, but the thought was there. Her and her family moved west to New Mexico, where she lived for 20 years, and eventually finished that geology degree when she was in her 50s. Although by that time, it was too late for her to find work as a geologist. Fate finally brought her here, where she's surrounded by some of the most impressive geological formations in the world. Once a week, she takes a bus around Moab. The rocks, the formations, 
I don't say a word to anyone in the bus because I'm staring out the window. It was so hard. And they're beautiful. And we're able to go in areas that I've been in before, but we were driving to some place and you don't pay as much attention. And now it's every second I'm staring at the, at the rocks. You might think that an upside of reaching your later years is that you can finally stop working. But she says that if she was younger, the thing she would most want to do would be to work. I guess work in the geological field. I never really did work in it, even after I got my degree. It just, at my age, I was almost 60, and who's going to employ a 60-year-old who's never had any experience in the field? If Logan could go back in time and tell her younger self anything, it would be this. Stick to my college education and don't put it off. That was a big mistake, and I'm sure it could have been arranged, but I didn't even try. And after 97 years, her advice to those with more time left than her? I guess think about yourself and make sure you do whatever you need to do to accomplish your desires, but at the same time, be considerate of others. I think I, I think I was too considerate of others and put myself second. You've been listening to Great Tape, an audio magazine from KZMU News. Our theme was Off to the Races. Our sponsor is Moab Trail Marathon. They will be off to the races November 5th and 6th with their unforgettable marathon, half marathon, 5K, and Kids K courses. Details and registration can be found at moabtrailmarathon.com. Contributors were Marlo Mooborn, Emily Arnston, Veronica Verdeen, Lauren Carmona, Brian Laidlaw, and the Family Trade. Featured interviews include John Schwager, Kurt Brewer, Jameson Wiggins, Doug McMurdo, Randall Lewis, Liz Ballinger, Kaya Marienfeld, Izzy Weimholt, AJ Long, Victor Beltran, Raymond Munson, Joel Sweat, and Marge Logan. Thank you to the staff and board of KZMU who really didn't know what we were talking about when we said we wanted to do a theme show slash audio magazine. Thanks for just hanging in there with us. And to you, listener, thank you. We've named this project Great Tape. And yes, that is aspirational. However, we do hope we brought some good, even great stories and sounds to your ears during the program. Thanks for being here with us. Until next time. <laughs>